Hi, just a note before we get into the regular episode. You'll probably be looking at the runtime on this and saying that, wow, it's pretty long, longer than most of our episodes. This episode was actually recorded in two takes, or two attempts. The first attempt, we got about halfway through, and then after recording for a while, we realized that our discussion was just kind of not where we wanted it to go. So we went back and a few days later re-recorded what we wanted to say, and then I even recorded some more stuff at the end that we kind of had to juxtapose in the middle. So what you're getting is kind of a Frankenstein of the conversations that we had, but should still be coherent, and I'll note where there's big breaks. I think there's only one place. Anyway, happy listening, and hope you enjoy it. Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're doing the last chapter in the second volume. And in a lot of ways, this actually will serve kind of as a primer for the third book, which is titled Of God and Gods. But it was introduced kind of in this last chapter of this book. And the title of this chapter is God the Eternal Father. And what we're going to do tonight is talk about my dad's unique interpretation of Joseph Smith's theology, specifically pertaining to what thoughts were kind of talked about in the King Follett discourse, as well as the Sermon in the Grove. So this is refuting or softening some of what a lot of people might consider some of the central distinctions of Mormonism from traditional Christianity. And so I think that we all are acknowledging that, we understand that, but the two sermons given at the end of Joseph Smith's life, or towards the end, were the King Follett discourse and the Sermon in the Grove. And we're going to get into all the different problems, but for traditional Mormonism, from the King Follett discourse, I think the main takeaway that was new and kind of controversial doctrine was that God came to be God, and therefore so can we, seemingly. And my dad will kind of talk about his view on that. And then the Sermon in the Grove, the main takeaway from that is that there seem to be other gods other than God the Father. And most Mormons interpret what Joseph Smith said here to be that there are gods above Heavenly Father, and he has his own father, and so on, and perhaps ad infinitum, or perhaps only to a head god, and therefore it'll also happen after. Anyway, so that shouldn't sound too unfamiliar to anybody, just because that's, you know, pretty standard Mormon beliefs, at least in the generation that I was taught. Anyway, well, let's get right to it. So first off, Dad, this topic seems a little out of place compared to the rest of the book. Why did you choose to have this topic at the end of this particular book? I was actually showing how the negation of the ontological divide worked with exaltation, but I had to wipe away some assumptions about what exaltation consisted in first. And the notion that God is eternal and that we are also eternal is essential to our notions of salvation and exaltation. So what I'm doing here 
is beginning the notion of theosis and exaltation that I will flesh out in the third volume. So it's a preparation for the third volume and a culmination of this volume having to do essentially with salvation by grace, sanctification by grace, and exaltation. All right. And talking about your views here, what are some of the groundwork things you'd like to lay out? For example, we'll just, I'll do this one since it's right from the book. I'll introduce the argument here, and I already did kind of, but I'll just read these two things. So you say, on February 5th, 1840, Joseph Smith observed, I believe that God is eternal, that he had no beginning and can have no end. Eternity means that which is without beginning or end. However, just a few years later, Joseph Smith reportedly said, We have imagined and supposed that God was God from all eternity. I will refute that idea. And you ask the obvious question, well, how can these both be true? Let's put it in the context of Joseph Smith's growing knowledge. The statement is made in 1840. It's only three years before the King Follett Discourse. Well, four years in, in, in any event. So this is a part of his Nauvoo theology. He's already stated in 1839 revelation that God is the God of all other gods, introducing the notion, or fleshing out the notion, if you will, that there is an eternal Father in heaven who is the God of all other gods. We have numerous statements in the scriptures that state that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are one eternal God, or the state that God is without beginning or end. And we have numerous statements in the Bible that could be cited as well. So the question becomes, is Joseph Smith's Nauvoo development simply out of line with his earlier views? Did he develop beyond the notion that God had already been fully God before becoming mortal? Now, the primary burden of this chapter is different than what most people think. The primary burden of this chapter is to show that God has always been God, prior to the time that he became mortal. And I have three observations regarding that. One is that it's clear in Nauvoo from numerous statements made by Joseph Smith that the Holy Ghost is currently a being of spirit, but that he will one day take a body upon him. It's clear in Joseph Smith's thought, even beginning with the Book of Mormon, that Jesus is a fully divine being. And when I say fully divine being, I mean that he is recognized as a being that gives revelation even during that period of time and that is worshipped and shares all power with our Heavenly Father. Now, he's a fully divine being in the same sense that we will become fully divine beings. I want to make clear that when I say that Jesus is a fully divine being, I don't mean that he is divine in any way that we cannot be divine and that the path that he trod is exactly the same kind of path that we will undertake if we choose to follow him, with one exception. And that is, an, what I argue is that in every moment where Christ could make the decision to be one with his Father, he has done so. The only difference is one of free choices that he makes as opposed to the choices that we make. It's not an ontological difference. There's nothing that is inherent in the kind of being that he is that is ontologically different from the kind of being that we are. So the next observation is that Joseph Smith maintained, and this is what the real burden of this of the argument is, the observation that Christ was already recognized as divine before birth in a sense that we are not. 
the pre-existence of Christ as a divine being is well recognized in the genuine epistles of Paul, more in what I would call the questioned epistles of Paul, such as Philippians, Corinthians, and his divine pre-existence is recognized in Hebrews, which I don't take in any sense to be an epistle of Paul. And I don't know any scholars who do believe it was an epistle of Paul. I believe it was written by a a convert to Christianity from the Qumran community that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. But in any event, once we put this all together, it's a very familiar view. Before becoming mortal, we are beings of spirit. We take upon ourselves a body. We then become disembodied again to be merely spirits of death. But at the resurrection, we take upon us our bodies again, except that our bodies are glorified by the light of the law that we have chosen to live. So if we've lived a celestial glory, they are glorified and given life by the light of a celestial glory. If we've lived a terrestrial glory, they are glorified and given light by the light of a terrestrial glory. And if it is a celestial glory, then they are vivified and given life by the energy and light of a celestial glory. So this is the pattern. It's true of the Holy Ghost, it's true of us, and it's true of Jesus Christ. Before birth, we are spirits. We come, take a body. We undergo a mortal death. We're separated from our bodies, and then we take on a glorified, resurrected body. That's true of the Father as well as what I argue. I think that most people, and again, focusing, the question here is, has the Father always existed as a divine being? And I distinguish between two views to to make it pellucidly clear. One is the view that God became God at some first moment. And the question then becomes, well, you mean there was an eternity during which God the Father wasn't divine and then he grew to be divine at some time? I believe that's been the common reading of the King Follett discourse before I began writing my books. The second view is that there is a time interval, we'll call it T1 to T2, where T1 is without beginning, in which the Father is divine. He then, just as Christ did, empties himself of his divinity. Again, this is a canonic theory of Christology. He empties himself of his divinity to become mortal. He then exercises a power that only he and Christ or divine beings have, and that is to resurrect themselves. They have a divine power of resurrection, and he now exists as a resurrected being. And so he did the very same thing that the son did. And if we uh, we can get more, and we will get more particularly into the arguments that were made by Joseph Smith, but the key scripture for Joseph Smith in both the King Philip Discourse and in the Sermon on the Grove is in John 5 with the argument that the son only did what he saw the father do. Joseph Smith takes this to be a statement that Christ is following the same pattern as his father. Well, the Holy Ghost is following the same pattern that Christ will follow. He just hasn't taken upon himself a body yet. We're also following the same pattern as Christ, where we come from being spirits to mortal bodies to mortal death, where we are spirits again, and then to a glorified, resurrected body. I argue that God the Father went through the very same thing. The distinction is is that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost in each moment of eternity have chosen to be one God. And we're fully divine before becoming mortal. We're not fully divine, but the reason we're not fully divine is solely because we didn't make the same choice to be united in love that they made in each moment of eternity. So that's basically the view. Okay, well, up front we need to clarify something 
maybe if you haven't been listening to the podcast, we have clarified this before, but in your view, what does it mean to be fully divine? And before you answer, I guess, because I've always understood this, that we are all divine. We're just at different places on our level of divinity, perhaps. But I understand that since we are the same kind as God, then we are already the divine kind. We are just not to the level of whatever he is. I define full divinity in the first volume and stick with that definition, and that is any being that is immediately present to all reality exercises power without mediator at all places, maximal power at all places, and has knowledge of all things that are and have been, is fully divine. And so it's a matter of being present immediately to all things in virtue of the spirit that proceeds from God's presence to fill the immensity of space, quoting here DNC 93 and 88. And a fully divine being arises from the love of the divine persons for one another. In other words, there's such a complete unity that there's an emergent quality like water emerges from the union of two atoms of hydrogen and one of oxygen, something new arises, and in this case what arises is the divine shared power and divine knowledge. And so there are three qualities that are essential to full divinity. One is to exist in this loving relationship that gives rise to the emergent glory that proceeds from their united presence to fill all space. In virtue of that glory that proceeds to all places unmediatedly, and we can explain what that means, but they are, in virtue of that, able to exercise power at all places, and that's the sense in which they're omnipresent, and they have knowledge of everything that's occurring at every place, in virtue of the fact that they're present to it in that sense. And so that's what it is to be fully divine. It has to do with the emergent properties of being in a fully unifying divine relationship, and those include the divine properties of, if you will, this in this sense, omnipresence, in this sense, maximal divine power, and in this sense, full divine knowledge. All right, and so you are claiming that all three members of the Godhead have all of these traits. They have all of these traits, unless, except for during the time that they empty themselves of the fullness of divinity to become alienated. Well, we'll get, we'll get to that later. It's like undoing the molecular unity of hydrogen and oxygen when they're not in a unity, molecular unity. They're just hydrogen and oxygen. They have to be in a molecular unity to have the properties of water. In a similar way, the divine beings must be in this united union in order to have the divine properties of divine power, divine knowledge, and divine presence. I know the answer to this, but it's important for you to define. So this as in all three of them and only all three of them? Or how many does it require in order for there to be this emergent property of divinity? It's unclear how many it requires, except for God couldn't carry out his plan unless there were three. There only need to be two to have these emergent properties. There need to be three, however, in order for a person in the Godhead to become divine, because while that person empties himself of the divine properties to be mortal, two remain in relationship to maintain the divine power, knowledge, and presence throughout all reality. So, in other words, God would commit deicide if all three chose to reject each other all at once. 
in the canonic theory, what happens is that Christ empties himself of his divinity by choosing to become an alienated human being, a mortal, and then to freely choose to undertake that relationship again. And we're in the same boat. The difference is that in each moment of reality where they could make the choice, they have made the free choice to be in relationship. We haven't made that same choice. So the difference between us and the divine persons in the Godhead is that we've made different choices in moments of eternity. Okay. And then I guess another distinction that I've brought up before that I think you've actually answered fairly well, but I've brought up in the past that the way that you present it is since these three beings have been in this divine emergent relationship for all eternity, then somehow that makes them very different and so that we can't ever be exactly like them and anything that we join in is going to not really be the same thing because we'll never be the same as them. And I say, perhaps that's what's called an ontological difference. But you have pointed out to my satisfaction that our ontological difference is not the same thing because you just say they have always made a different choice. That does not mean that we could not have made that choice. It's just that we did not. And therefore, the difference is not one of ontology, which I guess, when, can you define ontology? Yeah, ontology is the way in which we exist and the mode of our being. So we all exist, and, and let's make this clear. In Mormon thought, every intelligence is uncreated. And just as the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost are uncreated intelligences, so are we. Every capacity that they have, we also have. So we exist not only of necessity, and I would just call this factual necessity, we exist of this factual ontological necessity, all of us. We have the same kind of being and existence. We also have the same capacities ontologically to be realized given the kind of beings that we are. So there's no distinction ontologically between us and the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Just as molecules of hydrogen and oxygen aren't really different ontologically than molecules of hydrogen and oxygen and water, we're not different from the divine persons. The difference is the kind of unity that we've chosen to be in. Let's say that this kind of example isn't exact because oxygen and hydrogen don't choose to be in union. They're in union of a natural necessity. We choose, by choosing to love one another fully, to be in the kind of unity that the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost choose. And so, in each moment where they could choose that, to express their love fully for one another, they have made that choice. We haven't made that choice. And so the difference is that we've made different choices. Now, let me put it in a different way. You're my son, and ontologically, and in terms of nature, you are everything that I am. But I'm a lawyer, and you are the director of art for an advertising agency. And that difference is explained by the fact that we have made different choices. We had different choices presented to us. You could have chosen to be a lawyer and be more like me than you are. I wouldn't say that that's to your advantage in any way, but you could have made that choice. <laughs> and so the only distinction really, however, between the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost and us are, are the free choices that they've made. Free choices are not really a kind difference. We are the same kind as the divine persons. What differs in us is that we have made different choices, and as a result, the glory that we manifest is different because the glory of divinity emerges from the loving unity of the persons in the Godhead. Now, let me make this clear. Let's assume that someday you fully choose to be in 
total unity and to love fully the members of the Godhead. You will be everything that they are, and there will not be a distinction in terms of your glory. You will share fully in everything that they have, everything that they are, and you'll have the very same glory. There will not be anything that they know that you don't know. There will not be any power that they exercise that you don't exercise in unison. And there will not be any place where they exercise power that you won't also be present and exercise power in union with them. So it's not you're not barred from being everything they are. It's just a matter of making a, the choices that will bring you to the stature of the mind of Christ and to share fully in that unity in the glory of the Father. I could show you, I believe that that's in part what Paul is talking about, but it's so important to make this clear that what I'm proposing isn't that we are a different kind of thing, a different kind of being, a different kind of ontological order than the divine persons. The very path that they have trod, they're asking us to walk also. It's just that the results of being in a divine union are sharing fully in the divine properties. We haven't made that choice, so we haven't shared fully in the divine properties. When we do make that choice, we will, in every respect and in the same sense that they do. Two other questions before we dive into the what Joseph Smith said and then how we can get anything other than what everyone else has taken from it. In your view, if this Godhead is this emergent property, and it, as far as we know, it just is a relationship between at least two beings, are any of the beings essential to this divine emergent property for there to be creation and the universe, for example, obviously I'm getting at, is it essential that God the Father remain God the Father if we also join in to this divine union? I'll remain agnostic on that. It is simply a matter of fact that Jesus taught that it is a relationship with his Father and giving glory to his Father that is essential for this relationship. He gave all glory to his Father And the way that Jesus set it up, God the Father is preeminent. In some sense, all glory is due to the Father, and a glory that Christ would not assume. So there is a type of preeminence to the Father. Now, your question is a good one. Could it have been different persons instead of these persons logically? And I suppose the answer to that is yes, except for what the book of Abraham reveals is there is this gradation of intelligences. and What it says is that God is not merely the most intelligent. He's more intelligent than them all. So we have this greatest intelligence, and that is, you know, God. Now, does that mean that they have this greatest intelligence because they share this divine property? I don't think that the Book of Abraham is speaking in those terms. I think that it's talking in terms of a term that Joseph Smith used in both the King Follett Discourse and in the Sermon on the Grove. And in DNC 121, the term is the head God. So we have a head God, the first or preeminent God. And Joseph Smith is saying that there is a God who is God of all other gods. The book of Abraham recognizes this, this God as the most intelligent of all intelligences. And so in this sense, it's not that the intelligence that God has is a different kind or a different species of intelligence than what we have. It's just greater. Just like the fact that there are people who are much more intelligent than I am, but we're still both human beings. Okay, makes sense. Uh, I have one last question before we go into the King Follett discourse. So, in LDS thought, at least as far as I understand, well, let me read what you said because it brought up this question for me. In the chapter you up front want to make this clear, you say, 
I also want to clear away an assumption that could derail this discussion before it even gets started. It is common among Latter-day Saints to assert that it is necessary to have a glorified body of flesh and bones to be divine. However, that view is surely mistaken, for the LDS scriptures uniformly identify the Son as the God revealed in the Old Testament. It follows that the Son was fully divine before he became mortal. So we've talked about that already a little bit, but there is this idea in Mormon thought that to get what is known as exaltation, which is different from salvation, exaltation, at least as far as I've been told, requires a mortal body. So first off, how would you define exaltation? And in order for God to be exalted, did he have to obtain a body? Because we do know that God now has a body. And I guess we'll discuss from there, but... I would adopt the same definition of exaltation that is present in DNC 132 and in DNC 76. DNC 76 is the vision, and DNC 132 is usually called the revelation on plural marriage, but it isn't a revelation on plural marriage. It's a revelation on the sealing power. And what it says there is that they are gods because the angels are subject to them and they have power over all things. And so that's what exaltation is. And it says nothing at all in either place about having a glorified resurrected body as a condition to being fully exalted. It doesn't even mention it. The notion does seem pretty important, especially, I know it gets further emphasis from different leaders down the line, but I, I know that Joseph Smith did say at least more than one statement about how uh, the body was essential for something, and that's why we even get resurrected. If the body is not important, then why get resurrected? Joseph Smith believed that the body was important to gaining ascendancy over evil spirits who don't have bodies. There are two ways that can happen. You can do it because you have a body and you are, in some sense, superior because you have access to abilities that the spirits don't have. But that could also be done, it seems to me, by refusing to give heed to evil spirits and not giving them any power. It's clear anybody who thought about this for even two seconds in Mormon thought would recognize that to be a fully divine being, you don't have to have a resurrected body because the Holy Ghost doesn't have a full body. It's standard. And yet the Holy Ghost is recognized as a divine being. Anybody who said that the Holy Ghost was not in the Godhead and a divine being would be, I think, rejecting something very essential in, in Mormon thought and in Christianity in general. So unless one is going to say that the, that the Holy Ghost is not really divine as an individual divine person, they're going to have to recognize that you don't need a body to be fully divine. If I could jump in for a second, I guess the question comes, why is it required for us to have a body then? What is it about not choosing love at some point in time that requires getting a body to learn how to love like and enter into the relationship that the Godhead is in? Clearly, one can love without having a body in that sense, because the Holy Ghost loves in that sense, and the premortal Christ loved in that sense without a resurrected body, so one doesn't need a resurrected body in order to demonstrate that kind of love. Presumably, the reason that we have bodies that we do is to provide us an opportunity to experience opposition in all things, and to appreciate the difference between good and evil, and the sweet and the bitter. Uh, at least that's how the Book of Mormon lays it out. A resurrected body, again, is not essential to be a fully divine being. We have bodies so that we can grow. Now, let me make this clear. 
we require more growth in order to be qualified to enter into the loving relationship because for some reason we haven't been able to choose that kind of love for an eternity in the past. We're still growing. We're not done. But God put together a plan where having a body would assist us to grow by the opposition that we would experience. And so for us, the body gives us an opportunity to grow further. The members of the Godhead were able to express that kind of love even without a body. But again, no Mormon could maintain that you have to have a glorified, resurrected body to be fully divine unless you're going to say that the Holy Ghost isn't a fully divine person. And if you're going to, you're going to say that the pre-mortal Christ wasn't a divine person because he didn't have a mortal body before this life either. I think most both of them do think that, though. I think there's a difference between what you're saying fully divine and what Mormons understand as exalted. Well, they ought to read exaltation if they're going to talk about it in terms of the scriptural talk about exaltation and where that's revealed. And that's revealed in DNC 132 and in DNC 76, and it doesn't mention anything about having a glorified resurrected body. Surely those aren't the only things said about exaltation, though. That's just where it maybe have first been mentioned and the only place it's technically in canonized scripture, but Joseph Smith did say other things about that specifically. Okay, he did. But the focal point of exaltation is actually the revelations. If Joseph Smith is simply giving us his own opinion, it doesn't hold the same weight as a revelation. We have good reason to believe revelations because God knows a lot more than we do. And when he reveals the truth, we have reason to believe it because God is a being of truth and he knows more than we do. If Joseph Smith is giving us opinion, we don't have a reason to believe that over anybody else. But the bottom line is, is that if you look at what the scriptures have to say about exaltation, and if you can give me a good statement by Joseph Smith or anyone else that says you have to have a glorified, resurrected body in order to be exalted in the sense spoken of in the scriptures and in the sense spoken of, for instance, in the temple endowment, then I'd like to see it. Okay, like I said, I didn't, I didn't have time to prepare that part, so I know there's something, I just don't have it in front of me right now. Well, I can probably provide something at a future time. I'd really like to see it, because I don't believe you can. All right, I'll give it a go. One other thing before we get into it, but this leads directly into the King Follett Discourse. So also in the chapter, you, I mean, you've kind of already addressed this, I guess, but it seems to be different from what you said in the chapter. In the chapter, you said, well, Joseph Smith seems to be contradicting himself here, and rather than believe that Joseph Smith would do something like contradict himself, I would like to take a closer look at what is said and make it not so contradictive, I guess. I guess one point I'm trying to bring up is that Joseph Smith did contradict himself all the time, but we didn't understand it as a contradiction. We understood it as an evolution or a learning process. And like you've stated many times, he didn't have a systematic theology. That's not what he was. He was just sparks flying of inspiration and revelation wherever they came from. And his views did evolve from his cultural views of God as possibly trinitarian or modalistic to what most mormons see is culminating in these king fault in the king fault discourse as well as sermon in the grove clearly his views were not modalistic i have an article written refuting that and i refute it several times in the books that i've written joseph smith was not modalistic his culture was right no his culture was not that's a heresy in christian thought <laughs> okay sorry I, I i don't know what would you say that methodists are what would you say that all the creeds declare. I mean, that doesn't seem to be a heresy. I don't know what the distinction between modalism and Trinitarianism is. I guess you could tell me that. 
the Wesleyan brothers who began Methodism were social Trinitarians. They were social Trinitarians because they were strongly influenced by Eastern Orthodox thought. Many in the Catholic Church are what I would call Latin Trinitarians. That is, that if you take the view that's most developed, that of Thomas Aquinas, the persons are not persons in the modern sense of the word at all. What they really are are, are just um, placeholders, if you will. And, and we'll, we'll go into this more in the next book, so I'm not going to get into it at length. Well, no, this is more of a side note. I'm just asking genuinely if you could define it just so I don't say stupid things going forward. Yeah, the, the Christians were Latin or, or Eastern Orthodox Trinitarians. The Methodists were social Trinitarians. But there's no notion that there's more than one God or that there's a God of all other gods or that there's a council of gods in any sense in any of those views. The council of the gods was not a view that was really promoted by any of those various religions. Now, you've, you've got a note here. Well, wasn't it just Professor Sizes who taught him Hebrew in 1836 that taught him about the council of gods? We were talking about the Trinity, and then all of a sudden you jumped to the divine council. So, Well, the, uh, I'm saying that Joseph Smith had a view of already truly distinct beings, um, and, and in fact foresaw that they were already spiritually embodied in some sense when, when the Book of Mormon was written. He had a view of distinct divine beings very early. Okay, well, scratch that then. I would, let me give another example. Just an example of Joseph Smith seemingly contradicting himself would be, and I, I've talked about this before, but his ideas on salvation for the non-Christian, for example. In the Book of Mormon, it says that people who died without the law, meaning never were taught the gospel would be saved by the blood of the atonement. End of story, period. Okay, we know that evolved later when he received a, well, it kind of evolved a little bit past there where he said that Christ went and visited the spirits in spirit prison and then they were saved because of that, because he unlocked spirit prison and then boom, everyone was fine. But also, it further evolved when he saw a vision of his brother Alvin in the celestial kingdom and he was like, what the? That's not normal, because that's not what I have been taught before. And then he's like, oh, you know what? Now we can understand that all people who would have received the gospel are going to be saved. So it's sort of like a weird Molinism on its surface. We already talked about how it's not necessarily. But then that further evolved to temple work, where we don't even have to guess now if people would have accepted it, because now we do proxy work for them through baptism. Now they can accept it. Those are very, very, very different views, but we're not saying they're contradictions. We're just saying they're evolutions of understanding. So as we're about to talk about these ideas in the King Follett discourse, does it really matter that Joseph Smith might contradict himself? Because he didn't seem to be afraid to contradict himself. My claim isn't that Joseph Smith never held contradictory views. My claim is that there are very well-established views about God's eternity, and they don't change. I mean, a lot of people would be willing to say that Joseph Smith's views changed, and he just readily contradicted the revelations that he had earlier, because when he learned more, he had to find a new ontology that would fully describe what was happening that was at odds with his earlier ontology. That may well be true. What isn't true is that he changed from believing that God was eternal in Kirtland and in New York and Missouri, and later in Nauvoo believed that God was not eternal. I gave the quote from Nauvoo that God is eternal <laughs> precisely to show that he didn't change his view. 
and asking, okay, if that was Joseph Smith's view, how do we make sense of it? But the notion that God hasn't always been God is standard. I mean, if one believes in the canonic theory of Christology, then there was a time during which God wasn't God because he emptied himself of the fullness of his divinity. Given those who accept what is being stated in, for instance, Philippians, that the Son emptied himself, already believe that God hasn't always been God from all eternity. Okay. I'm going to kind of let you give your argument here, highlighting the seemingly contradictory passages from the King Follett discourse to what the view that you're proposing. So if you could kind of go over what you feel are the main tenets of what is taught in the King Follett discourse, maybe give a little context of why he's even teaching this now, and your view of what he's actually saying. If you can cite any of the main troubling verses, I don't know, just lead the general Mormon who see, reads the King Follett discourse, and they're like, yeah, uh, definitely says that God came to be God, and he refuted the very idea that you just talked about, that God was God from all eternity. How can you get anything else out of that? Let me know. First, let me correct the ontology that exists because of the teachings of Brigham Young. I want to clear that away. Joseph Smith never taught that there was the birth of a spirit or that to be from an intelligence. Joseph Smith used the terms intelligence and spirit interchangeably, and he called spirits eternal spirits, uncreated. He said several times that spirits are uncreated. I've written an article on this that you can get on my website, but the bottom line is, is the notion that spirits have a birth through, through a heavenly mother was never taught by Joseph Smith. There is no record of Joseph Smith having ever taught anything about a heavenly mother. At least firsthand. Nothing firsthand. And those who claim that Joseph Smith taught it are saying that he taught something directly at odds with what he believed about spirits. So those kinds of comments that are attributed to him, people want to cite Liza Snow's poem, Oh My Father, and that kind of stuff. First of all, Liza Snow is probably talking about her own earthly mother and father who recently died just before she wrote that, and not an eternal father and mother. And so... You know, I just want to make clear that the kind of ontology that we got from Brigham Young about, or this process of a heavenly mother giving birth to spirits was not a part of anything that Joseph Smith ever taught. And it can't be assumed in interpreting what he had to say. In fact, one should assume precisely the contrary, because what he said is at odds with it, and he said the spirits were uncreated. The next thing is that I want to talk about what Joseph Smith was doing. Let's back up a little bit. We have these terms where it's clear that Joseph Smith is actually talking about a particular figure. He calls him the head God. Now, there are terms in Hebrew that mean that. El, Elohim, El Elyon, El Shaddai. All of these can be interpreted the Most High God or the Supreme God or the God who is the highest one. And so when we're talking about the head God, Joseph Smith is actually interpreting the Hebrew, and, and so why do I go into the Hebrew? Well, there were two keys to what Joseph Smith is teaching. One is that he taught that the first verse in Genesis 1 and 1, where it reads, Bereshit Elohim, Ait Shemaim, Vahu should be translated differently because a bet had been added to the term Bereshit, and so what it should say is is simply, and he actually taught this, it should say essentially Rash, which means head, 
And he says it means the head one of the gods. So he's teaching us about the head god. And he uses the term head god repeatedly. And so he's talking about one god that's over all of the other gods, just like DNC 121 says that there's a god of all other gods. I mean, he had already taught that in 1839. This is not something that's new in the King Follett discourse. It's part of Joseph Smith's thought. And so what he's saying about this head god, he then moves to a scripture which becomes the key for him in the King Follett discourse, where he's telling us to understand that God was once a man just like we are, that he became a human being. And to prove it, he cites John 5 and 19 that says the, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the father do. For whatever things soever the father doth, these also doth the son likewise. And the way that Joseph Smith interprets that is that the Son is essentially repeating the path of the Father. And just as the Son was once mortal, the Father was also once mortal. Well, the next question is, well, what was the status of the Son before becoming mortal? The answer is, well, he was fully divine. He was a divine being who had a divine preexistence. The divine preexistence is taught in the New Testament, is clearly taught in DNC 93. There's no way around it. Joseph Smith's revelations teach that the premortal Son of God is a divine being who is nevertheless in the process of growth, grace from grace. All divine beings are in the process of growth from grace to grace. But if the Son, and here's the key, if the Son is doing only what he saw his Father do, if the Son was fully divine before becoming mortal, so was the Father divine before becoming mortal. He's just doing what he saw his Father do. Moreover, Christ exercised a prerogative and a power that we would associate solely with divine beings. He had the power to resurrect himself. And the Father, likewise, had a power to resurrect himself. And so what we're talking, what is it that Joseph Smith is saying here? What Joseph Smith is doing is setting up a discourse where he's telling us the kind of being that the Father is. He's a head god. He's the god of all other gods. But this head god became mortal just like the Son did. But he was already fully divine before becoming mortal. So that's the starting place. The prophet said that the father did what the son did, and that's the basis for what he is asserting. Now, when we get to the Sermon on the Grove, it's a it's a different scripture that is at the center of what Joseph Smith is talking about. But before I get to the Sermon on the Grove, what we're talking about in the King Follett discourse, and, and that's just Let's talk about the specific statements that he makes. He's already put this and begun to explain to us, the head God organized the heavens of the earth. If we pursue the Hebrew text further, it reads, the head one of the gods said, let us make man in our own image. And the word Elohim ought to be plural all the way through, gods. The heads of the gods appointed one God for us. And so what he's saying essentially is that we have this head God. He solidifies that. And he solidifies it in the book of Abraham, which becomes a base text for him in the King Follett Discourse. Joseph Smith taught that the head God is the father of the gods in the King Follett Discourse. The supremacy of God is demonstrated by the fact that in the book of Abraham, he is the wisest of them all. He is the most intelligent, and this is what it says in the book of Abraham. This is 3 and 19. The Lord God said unto me, These two facts do exist, that there are two spirits, one being more intelligent than the other. There shall be another more intelligent than they. I am the Lord thy God. I am more intelligent than them all. This is the point where we're switching over to our other conversation. So 
That's why I'm reintroducing the subject. Don't mind that redundancy and enjoy. All right, so now what we're going to do that we've laid the groundwork for what we're about to talk about. In the last months of his life, Joseph Smith gave two sermons which seemed to introduce doctrine that was new to a lot of members of the church and was kind of controversial. And it can also be interpreted in a, num in a number of ways. These are the King Follett Discourse, which was given at a funeral for King Follett, who had been crushed by a bunch of rocks or something like that. And another is the Sermon in the Grove, which I think is just a sermon in a grove, like it says. And they are about two and a half, three months apart. One's April 7th, one's June 16th, both of 1844. And some of the reason that this led to some misunderstandings and or need for speculation is because Joseph Smith died not too long after the Sermon in the Grove. What, what day was he martyred again? June 27th. So June 16th was the Sermon in the Grove, and June 27th is when he was martyred. So not a lot of time to go and explain a lot of these things that seem to be new. But that doesn't necessarily mean that these things weren't discussed in private, possibly. So I'll start with the King Follett Discourse, and it's long and you can read it and I'll put a link to it, but for my dad's view, I want to kind of focus on one aspect of this mostly, and that is the King Follett Discourse seems to indicate that God came to be God and that he was not God from all eternity. In fact, it says that we have supposed that God was God from all eternity. I will refute that idea. Now, one thing we're going to draw from is several different accounts were taken. A lot of people, what you've read is the amalgamated or kind of like a mesh together of several accounts of what Joseph Smith said. As you know, in those days, they didn't have recording devices and shorthand wasn't invented yet. So some people invented their own kind of shorthand, but there was no perfect process. And so all of these different accounts differ in some cases significantly, in some cases just minor, but there are several accounts, and that's what the amalgamated version is that you're usually reading from. So, the ones we're going to reference are mostly the Thomas Bullock Report, there's a Wilfred Woodruff Journal, Thomas Clayton Report, and that's pretty much the main ones, I think. So, let me just kind of state what the controversial items are, and then you can tell me what your view on this is. Alright, so... Most of the accounts all agree that Joseph Smith reveals this. He says that God himself, who sits enthroned in yonder heavens, is a man like unto yourselves, who holds the worlds in his orbit, and so forth. Anyway, he says if we were to pull back the veil, you would see him like a man, and in the image and likeness of us. And so first off, that's a pretty watershed thing. He's, he's laying down the law. This is something he has taught before, though, that God is not a incorporeal, formless being. The God the Father, at least, is someone that you can see and looks like a man. So he says he's going to tell us what kind of a being God is, or what sort of a being God is. And this is what I want to get into. So a couple of the accounts, not Thomas Bullock's report, but two of them, say, I want you to understand God and how he comes to be God. That's from Wilfred Woodruff's journal. The Clayton report says, just basically the same thing, going to tell you how God came to be God. And so we have two accounts of him saying, we're going to tell you how God came to be God. And that's just introducing a different subject, which we'll get into in a second. But first off, what is your view on 
why they would say that if that is not what you believe is the case. Well, first of all, he's be, he's very clear that God comes to be God, and the basis of his telling us how God comes to be God is that Jesus Christ does the same thing that his father did. I'm just going to read from the Wilford Woodruff Report, okay, where it says, To understand the character and being of God, for I'm going to tell you what sort of being of God, for he was God from the beginning of all eternity, and if I do not refute it, which disagrees with the notion that somehow he wasn't God from all eternity, but what he says is truth is the touchstone that it is essential to know the character of God, that we may converse with him the same as a man. And God himself, the Father of us all, dwelt on an earth the same as Jesus himself did. I will show it from the Bible. And then he goes on, I wish I had the trump of an archangel. I could tell the story in such a manner that a person should cease forever. I said, as the Father hath power in himself, even so hath the Son power to do what the Father did. The answer is obvious, a manner to lay down his life and take it up. Jesus did as his father laid down his body and take it up again. If you don't believe it, you don't believe the Bible and the scriptures. And says, I defy all hell, all learning, wisdom, and records of hell together to refute it. It is eternal life to know the only wise and true God. You've got to learn how to be a God yourself and to be kings and priests to God same as all have done by going from small capacity to another, from grace to grace, until we sit in everlasting power as those who have gone before. He goes on, but it's clear that the base text that he's relying on is John 5.19. In John 5.19, it says that the Son only does what he saw the Father do, and he's reasoning from that and saying, we can say that the Father was also once a man, and he hasn't always been God, and he did just as the son did. But if his base text and his, the basis for his knowledge is John 5 and 19, we would have to put it in the context. And, and in, in fact, he confirmed several times, even in these two sermons, that Jesus Christ was a God in the heavenly council and that he was fully divine before becoming human. It's standard Mormon doctrine all the way from the Book of Mormon. In fact, Joseph Smith reaffirms this in the King Follett Discourse, that it was Jesus Christ himself who delivered the law, and he was recognized as God before coming to this earth. So the notion, there are two ways of understanding the assertion, God has not always been God, or the assertion that God came to be God. I'm going to parse each of those separately because I think they're two very different kinds of statements. The notion that God hasn't always been God is ambiguous as between two meanings. One is, there was an eternity before which God was divine. He was trying to figure out how to be divine. And after an eternity of not being divine, he finally figured out how to be divine and became God. Okay, And so God wasn't always God because um, he became God at some first moment after an eternity of not having been God. There's a second way of understanding this, which is consistent with Joseph Smith's base text, and it is this. God hasn't always been God in the same way that Jesus Christ hasn't always been God. And that is that there was a fully divine being, that is, the pre-mortal Jesus Christ, who gave up his full divinity for a time to become mortal. And during the time that he was mortal, he wasn't fully divine. He was growing from one grace to another and became God again, either through being exalted at the resurrection And in fact, this is the very power that Joseph Smith focuses on in this discourse. What does the Father do? Why he has power to take in himself to take up his life again, just the same as Jesus Christ. That's his assertion. 
So what he's saying is that he learned how to be God, in essence, by exercising the power of resurrection to become fully divine again. So as I look at the base text and what Joseph Smith is actually asserting here, it becomes clear that he's saying, at least to me, that before becoming mortal, the Father was already fully divine. He became mortal for a, t a time period, but he had a divine power in himself because he had been fully divine before. And then he exercised that power and became fully divine again. And what does it mean that you, you know, we've got to learn how to become gods ourselves and that God became a god. What it means is exactly what he says. God is always increasing from one measure to another. In fact, he says that when Christ is resurrected, he'll take the place of the glory of his father and his father will be glorified in Christ and move up in his glory. But this is an eternal progression that's always happening with God. The assumption that if a being is progressing, it must be the case that he wasn't fully defined before he progressed to a certain point is just false. It is divine beings precisely who are always progressing from one glory to another. They're always increasing in their knowledge and power by the experiences that they have. And so the way I understand Joseph Smith in the sermon, and, and it doesn't make any sense any other way for me given his base text, of John 5 and 19 and his observations about both the Father and the Son having the power in themselves to lay down their lives and take it up again, to assert that the Father was doing something different than Jesus did. Now, I'm going to make an observation. This comes from the Sermon on the Grove, but I think it's very important in this context. There he observes that the Holy Ghost will one day become, he'll take upon himself a body and become mortal. But I don't see how anybody could argue that he didn't view the Holy Ghost as a divine being. He did. And so the Holy Ghost is a divine being. He will one day become mortal, and so he won't be fully divine. He will grow one capacity to another, be resurrected, and take upon himself an exalted body. So it's the very same process for all of us. Let me make another observation. For Joseph Smith, and he makes this observation also in the King Philhead Discourse, we were all in the council of the gods before this life. We're of the same species of the gods. I think that's the point of his making the remarks about the uncreated intelligence. And he specifically talks about the council of the gods when he talks about the head god. He says the head god called forth the other gods and they created the earth together. He said the head god made man in his own image. In our image he was made. And so he talks about the, the sons of God that are in the council of the gods. In fact, he quotes also Psalm 82 and the scripture in John where Christ says, ye are gods, and he observes that we are called gods, and then he has a statement from Revelation, which he relies upon to say that we are priests and kings to God. And so what he's saying, and he's teaching, it's very clear later also on in the discourse, he's teaching that we're all of the same divine species, and that's the burden of what he's saying. And so we will do the same as our Father has done. We will grow from one capacity to another, from one grace to another, and from one glory to another, worlds without end and glory upon glory. It's a process that's always ongoing and will never end. So the assumption that if God became God in the same way that Jesus Christ became God, that somehow he wasn't God for an eternity before that, it just doesn't follow in Joseph Smith's thought. I'm getting a little confused on what you're saying. So you just said God became God the same as Jesus Christ became God. But I'm confused. Why are you saying it that way as opposed to just because that's not, doesn't seem like, if I understand it. I'll repeat it back to you if I'm not understanding. You say God was always God. He was divine before. I don't say he was always God. There was a time period during which he wasn't God. He's always God until a certain point where he 
decided to leave the fullness of his divinity and that relationship with the other members of the Godhead. And for about 70 to 80 years, let's assume, he was briefly not God. And you're saying that is what Joseph Smith is referring to when he says he was not God from all eternity. 70 years is when he was not God. That's what you're referring to, correct? It's precisely what Joseph Smith is referring to in because he's saying the Son did what the Father did. And what the son did was become mortal after having been fully divine and laid down his life and that the father had the same power to lay down his life and take it up because that's the power that Jesus Christ had. That's what he was sent to. And that's the similarity specifically that Joseph Smith is pointing to is this power to lay down his life and take it up, which I would say we don't have that power, <laughs> okay, unless you've got a power in yourself to resurrect yourself. You're citing the power to that he said he had the power in himself to resurrect himself, you're saying that only a divine being could have that power, and therefore, if you can resurrect yourself, which it says that Heavenly Father and Jesus both did, then that means that they were already divine? Yeah, it's the, the divine power to resurrect is, is one that only a divine being has. Later on, he talks about us being resurrected, but he doesn't talk about us having power in ourselves to lay down our lives and take them up again. Rather, it's God's power that resurrects us. And so he's making that kind of a distinction with respect to that status. So the way I see it, I don't see any other, other way to make sense of it, especially in light of the way he speaks about the Holy Ghost. He has a very clear vision of what divine beings do. They're first spirit beings. They're fully divine as spirit beings, just as Christ was when he appeared to the brother of Jared in Ether 3. He was already God, and he recognized him as God. He already had a spirit body. He was in the form of a man. Now, this notion that God already had a body is very early in Mormon thought. It's 1830 on. It's very clear that he's already picturing God as having a human form because he learned it from the Book of Mormon. Not his first vision? I don't see how seeing people in vision tells you they've got bodies. And Joseph Smith never, in any of his accounts of the first vision, says, I learned that they had resurrected bodies and, and that they were in a form of a man before this world. He yeah, well, I agree with you. I'm just, the church cites that a lot as that's what we learned from the first vision. So I, I just wanted you to say that. So, Well, Joseph Smith didn't learn that from the first vision. And merely seeing somebody in vision would not suggest that God couldn't take upon himself a form just for purposes of appearing. I don't think Joseph Smith deduced that. He didn't learn that until later, that God essentially has essentially, you know, a human form. Bottom line, as I see it, is that what Joseph Smith is teaching here is that we know because of what we read in John that the Father did what Christ did, and we know what Christ did. He was a divine being who became mortal. He laid down his life and had power to take it up again. I assume that people will accept that only a divine being has power to lay down their life in them and in themselves have power to take it up again. It's not a power that mere mortals have. Well, let me ask you one question. From what I understand, Joseph Smith at one point said that actually currently Adam holds the keys of the resurrection and at the second coming he will turn over those keys to Christ. So what would you think about a mortal, not a divine person yet, Adam having the keys of the resurrection? I would say that the keys were bestowed upon him by God the Father, and that the power to resurrect is dependent on both having the keys and the power of God exercised to resurrect. I'll just tell you what's obvious. No human being you've ever known had power to resurrect in and of themselves. That's what Joseph Smith is, is asserting here, and he makes a point about it, that they have power in themselves to take up their lives again. It's not a power we have in ourselves if it's based upon keys from another. 
So he's making a distinction here that is, uh, it's not very often observed, but it's essential. And what he's saying is, is we've got to learn to be gods in the very same way. We have got to learn how to go from one glory to another and, until we reach to the glory of the Father. When we reach to the glory of the Father, we will further glorify him and his glory will increase. But this is something that divine beings are always doing. They're always self-surpassing. In every moment, God is greater than he was in the moment before because he's an eternally progressing being in this sense. So the notion that because God is progressing one glory to another and tells somehow that he wasn't fully divine before doesn't follow any more than it follows that the Holy Ghost isn't fully divine now. However, it also doesn't follow from the fact that the Holy Ghost or, or Jesus Christ or the Father were disembodied in the sense that they weren't in mortal bodies or resurrected bodies before becoming mortal doesn't mean that they couldn't grow from taking on themselves a body. There is some sense in which having a body adds power and increases the glory of which one is capable. And so this notion of one glory upon another is relative to where a being is and what they have already accomplished. It's an ever-increasing power. All right. Well, that, I think that's, yeah, sorry, good to mention. We have talked about that already, but just recap for anyone who didn't listen to, we hit on it in the last chapter of the first book, but the reason that a divine being would become mortal is like you're explaining, because this is when you're explaining why Jesus would become mortal, but it's to come get the experience of being alienated from the Godhead because experience is good and it was worth it somehow. And I guess Jesus also did the atonement. I mean, I just want what Joseph Smith says about us is you've got to learn how to be gods yourself and to be kings and king and priest by going from a small capacity to a great capacity, to the resurrection of the dead, to dwelling in everlasting burning. And so the whole purpose of pointing this out, and, and he says this, the whole purpose of my telling you this is to increase your understanding of, of the kind of being that we truly are, and we're exalted far beyond what you supposed. We're the kind of beings, what he's saying, we have the capacity for divinity in us already. In a sense, in fact, he says, we already are gods, and Christ said as much, Psalm 82 says as much. And so he's relying on those kinds of scriptures to point out that not only did the Son do what his Father did before him, we've got to do what they did in order to increase our glory and be more fully divine. So, in my view, the difference between us and the Father and the Son is not one of kind. Let me give an analogy. In order for water to exist, there have to be two atoms of hydrogen and one of oxygen. Molecules of water are different than the individual atomic constituents of water. We are all like atoms, and the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are also atoms considered individually. We're all the same kind of thing. However, from all eternity, they have been joined in a unity that we haven't been joined in from all eternity. The difference is not the kind of thing we are. We're all atoms. The difference is in the kind of relationships we chose to exist in, and so the difference is one of a choice that we make to be in loving relationships. If I understand the scriptures correctly, and I think what hasn't been observed very often is that the King Philet Discourse is a continuation of Lecture 7 of the Lectures on Faith about how we become divine. And he begins, as a matter of fact, with the very same observations that are made in Lecture 7. He's not trying to make a break with the past. He's trying to increase our understanding of what's already been taught explicitly and is published at that time in the Doctrine and Covenants. It's a book expressing the doctrine of the saints that you can read called the Lectures on Faith, and it's still definitive at that time for what the saints believe. 
And the purpose for saying all of this is that in the lectures on faith and in all of his earlier writings, he focuses on this type of relationship, and it's based upon what's said in John 17, that we may be one as the Father and the Son are one, that we may be glorified in them. And in being glorified, we have the very same glory that they enjoy. Now, there are a number of other scriptures that could be cited, but he even relies on that in this very discourse, in the King Follett discourse. So he's not abandoning the notion that we become divine by being joined to this relationship of unity. He, in fact, is building on that notion. And the way I understand what he's teaching is that from all eternity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost have been one God in the sense that they've been united in a loving relationship. We've been invited into that relationship. From all eternity, they made the choice to be one. And when they're, they're one, the properties of divinity emerge from the relationship and divinize them, Christify them, make them divine, glorify them. Okay, And so it's the nature of the relationship that is crucial to the kind of glory that God now enjoys. However, they have to be the kind of thing that when in union, they can participate in this glory. You can't take two atoms of, of manganese and, and an atom of uranium and make water. You just can't do it. They're not, they don't have the capacity to do it. You have to be a certain kind of being in order to create water. Well, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost are the kinds of atom that, when joined in a union, create glory. We also can do the same thing and participate in the same glory to the very same extent. We're not different in kind. We're different in the choices that we make. Who among us would claim that we're as loving as Jesus was? And what Jesus is teaching us is how to love one another in a way that will be glorifying for us, that we can be one as the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost are one, so that we can enjoy their same glory worlds on end. So Joseph Smith isn't abandoning that. He's magnifying that kind of a teaching and explaining what that means. He's not abandoning the Bible he, and, and the prior teachings in his scriptures. He's magnifying them and expanding them. Let, let me make just two statements that I want to, to make that are very clear. The first is that the argument is often raised, well, this isn't consistent with what the brethren thought Joseph Smith was teaching. That's just a supposition and an assumption, because not all the brethren taught anything like this. Orson Pratt certainly didn't understand Joseph Smith to be teaching this. Partly Pratt certainly didn't understand him to be teaching that there is an ever, you know, there's an infinity of gods above and below. He didn't understand that God became God after not having been God. They didn't understand it that way. And when the assertion is made, well, all of the brethren understood Joseph Smith to be teaching what I thought he was teaching, that's just simply false. They didn't teach that. In fact, they had different views on this. It may be what Brigham Young taught, but you have to remember a lot of what Brigham Young taught was tied up and later became involved in his Adam-God teachings, which were rejected by the church. The next observation is only a few of the brethren, Wilfred Woodruff among them, and I think John Taylor, were present for the King Follett discourse, and none of them were present for the Sermon on the Grove. So if you're asserting, well, they all understood him to be saying the same kind of a thing, that's just false. It's historically false. And if you read their works, it's, it's obviously false because it's not what they all taught. So this kind of an argument carries no weight, but I hear it every single time I give this interpretation of the King Follett discourse. It's just not a good argument because it's historically false and it's historically ignorant of the fact that, that they weren't even there, really. Okay. Well, from what I've studied, a lot of them were there for the King Follett discourse, but not necessarily for the Sermon in the Grove because they were on missions. But I think the point that most people are making there is not that 
the direction they went from this was the exact same, but the core ideas were pretty much the same. The, the Prats did understand that a god did come to be god or didn't exist necessarily. Well, there's various views, I guess. And, oh, yeah, Brigham Young went his direction. They all kind of went a different interpretation, but the core idea that god came to be god or that there were gods, which we'll get into in a minute, above or more gods than just God the Father, but there was just one God pertaining to us. Those did seem to be universal among the brethren, although, again, they that's went different false. directions. That's just false. It's historically false, and if you pay any attention to their writings, it's false. They didn't have the same ideas. They taught various views, and the Pratt certainly didn't. Right, not the same exact ideas, I'm saying, but the same core, what they went from. The Pratt's, John Taylor... Amasa Lyman, the others did not understand Joseph to be teaching this. And so when, when the argument is made, well, they all understood it, I have to say, I think you're ignorant of what they actually believed. You haven't read. When you say it, what are you referring to? Their teachings about whether God had been God from all eternity and the understanding that there is just one God and that consists of a unity. So the bottom line is that if you're looking at an later follow-up interpretation, they're not interpreting the King Follett Discourse. First of all, you've got to realize, I mean, it was published in the Times and Seasons on August 15, 1844, but not many people had access to even the writings. The apostles, by the time it was published, were, didn't have access to it. And they taught very different kinds of things, and they didn't have the same understanding. And I believe that it can be documented that only three of them, well, we can only document that three of them were there. And so asserting that they all heard the King Follett discourse and all understood it the same way is just false. It's just not historically true. And it's not true if you read their writings. They don't teach the same thing and they didn't understand it the same way. So the, this kind of historical argument is not only doesn't hold any water, it's just it's historically wrong as to the assertions that are made. Okay, well I don't want to get into that too much i mean there you could go a few ways there and but rather than digressing into that let me ask you two questions just back to my first question how do you reconcile still that two of these accounts do specifically say they have joseph recorded at least according to them as saying that they're going to show you how god comes to be god which i don't know how else you can interpret that other than he wasn't god before this and now he has come to be god your interpretation that that's inconsistent with God coming to be God is false. Jesus also comes to be God, but was fully divine before becoming mortal. I don't understand what you mean by that. Can you explain how someone can come to be something that they already are? Unless I understand what you say about he was, and then he came down, and then he went back up to being God. Are you saying it only refers to when he went back up to be God? Well, okay. While he was here, he was of the divine kind. He was the son of God. And we're the kind of being that God calls gods. In fact, Joseph Smith even interprets where Moses was called a god to Israel as being a god in the very same way. Okay, So he's pointing out that the calling somebody a god has different meanings. He was well aware of it. Is that in this? I, don't, I think that's in the that's Sermon in the, the Sermon in the Grove. The Woodruff Report says, I want you to understand God and how he comes to be God. Whereas Clayton says, I'm going to tell you how God came to be God. Bullock is the one that does not say that. He follows it up with this. God was once God on another earth. Yeah, or how That's is God God? Yeah, and so what he's saying is, he's not saying that Jesus wasn't fully divine before he became mortal. Are you asserting that Joseph Smith believed that Jesus wasn't fully defined before becoming mortal? 
Are you asserting that he didn't believe that the Holy Ghost was fully divine before becoming mortal? As I said in the intro, that's why I thought it was it was very important to understand exaltation versus whatever this divinity is, because he does definitely say that Jesus did not have exaltation before his mortal sojourn. No, he doesn't say that at all. He does because he, he says, says he goes from one exaltation to another. No, that's he said. I'm sorry, Jesus. He says doesn't have exaltation. He says the Father. I don't know if this is in this one or the Sermon in the Grove either. I, I can scroll down, but basically he says he had to work out. He saw my Father. He worked out his own kingdom, and and Jesus worked out his kingdom just the same way. And then he'll. Yeah, that's in the Sermon on the Grove. He said he worked it out with fear and trembling, the same as Jesus did. Yes, and then he, when he's done with that, he's going to give his kingdom that he worked out to his father, which will add to his father's kingdoms, but then he will take his exaltation. Yeah, it's just an expression of eternal progression, where he's saying that you, you go from one exaltation to another, and what we do is mutually glorify each other. Now, this when, one's actually in the, uh, that's in King Follett Discourse. I saw my father work out his kingdom with fear and trembling, and I must do the same. And when I get my kingdom, I shall present it to the father. So he obtains kingdom upon kingdom, and it will exalt his glory so that Jesus treads in his tracks to inherit what God did before. Yeah, so what he's saying is that this is an eternal ongoing... In fact, he says we've got to do the same thing in, in the King Philet Discourse. And what they're saying is we have to go from one glory to another, and that this is an eternal process. has no beginning, has no end. And so Becoming God is always becoming. It's it's being a, a being in progress, a being that is always surpassing a prior glory that was previously held. So the notion that he is becoming God in this sense is focusing simply on the becoming that's inherent in the process of exaltation that's always ongoing, taking up one glory and going from one glory to another. In fact, he says this, going from one glory to another, one exaltation to another, worlds without end. And so what he's pointing out is the eternality of this growth, not some notion that is, and he doesn't say this. This is expressly what he doesn't say. At some first moment, he grew and became God. That's nothing like that that he's saying, and that's how you're interpreting it, and it's just inconsistent. I don't understand how you can understand anything other than someone came to be something that they weren't if they came to be that thing. Well, what he's saying in close context is he came to be resurrected by taking his life up again. Well, that's not what it says. I mean, you can interpret it that way, but it definitely says, I'm going to tell you how God became God, which I don't see how you can interpret any other way, especially if he's refuting the very idea that God was God from all eternity. Like, it just logically is a perfectly next step. Well, to what end is this? Uh, if, if he says, I do not refute it, or I do refute it, he's saying he's refuting the idea that God was God from all eternity, right? And then in the very next sentence, he exactly says something you agree with, that God, in fact, was not God from all eternity. So he. But that's as true on my interpretation as on the notion that he became God at some first moment. I know, but then it, and then it would support him saying that. <laughs> what it's inconsistent with is the notion that's extremely well established and could hardly be argued that Jesus was fully divine before becoming mortal and that the Holy Ghost is now fully divine and will one day become mortal. Okay, well, let me ask you one last thing so we can just move on here, okay? So logically, I mean, you, yes, you're going to have to put aside a lot of your particular interpretations, but logically, could a being, because we can do this, so it's logical, would it be possible before a mortal sojourn for an intelligence to progress to divinity without ever going through a mortal sojourn? 
Is it logically possible that God could have progressed from not being fully divine to being divine before his mortal, mortal sojourn? So I'm giving you perhaps that you can interpret it the way that you have. I'll give you that. That's, that's a possible interpretation. That's logical. That's contrary to my interpretation. It is, but is it logically possible is all I'm asking you. So both situations exist in this sermon. Joseph Smith is observing that we haven't been fully divine from all eternity, but we can become fully divine by sharing fully the glory of the Father. The Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, however, are fully divine before becoming mortal. They lay aside their divinity, or they, remember I've given a canonic theory of Christology, where what they do is they emptied themselves of the fullness of their divinity. And for that period of time, they are not, in Joseph Smith's parlance, they are not God because they don't have the powers of full divinity, including omniscience, some maximal power, and omnipresence. They don't have those powers during the time that they're mortal. However, and this is how they become God again, and this is how we become God in the same way, we must be resurrected. They have power in themselves to resurrect. We must rely on their power of resurrection to be resurrected. And when we are resurrected, we will then, if we choose to be one in them, we will increase exaltation upon exaltation from one glory to another, from one kingdom to another. And we will continue to do that worlds without end. It's an eternal process. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost have been increasing glory. They've been growing and having one kingdom and growing from glory to glory. This is expressly what he says in the sermon. He's saying that we're not barred. We can become just what they are because we're already sons and daughters of God. We already were in the divine council of gods. This is exactly what he's saying. All I'm asking you is logically, since we know it is logical, I'll just answer the question for you, that a being could progress without going into their mortal life from being a non-divine being to a divine being before this world. It is logically possible, I'm not saying it's inferred here or anything, I'm just saying it's logically possible, that God could have come to be a divine person, meaning he was at one point not a divine person, though he came to be a divine person, prior to his own mortal life. That is logically possible given all the conditions that we understand. It, it is logically possible, it's just irrelevant, because that's not what Joseph Smith was teaching about how God became God. It's not irrelevant, because it's definitely relevant, because it contrasts with your view. It is possible. I'm not saying that it's necessarily what Joseph Smith explicitly taught, but if it's possible... It would have to go against everything else Joseph Smith. Uh, not, it dep yeah, unless you interpret it not how Dad is. <laughs> The number of scriptures that say that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost have been God from all eternity to all eternity are numerous. And here's the problem. If you're saying that Joseph Smith is repudiating virtually every revelation that he had before he walked up into the stand for, to give the King Follett discourse, then so be it. But that's not a responsible way of interpreting texts, in my view. And what we're asking, look, texts are subject to almost an infinite array of interpretations. There's always play in text. There's never a final definitive reading of a text. And what I'm doing is giving a hermeneutic within a large context that I think is the best way to understand this text. Because if you're going to say that the Father did what the Son did, and he wrought precisely as he did, and you say, well, hold it, didn't Joseph Smith believe that Jesus was fully divine before becoming mortal? I think the answer is, yeah, unless he forgot about everything he taught before he walked onto the stand that day on, what was it, April 7th. 
then you're going to have to interpret it within the scope of the rest of his teachings to understand what he's saying. You just don't forget everything he said before he got there. True, but he also at one point taught that God was a spirit and didn't have a body, and now he's teaching that he does. So, I mean, he does change his views. It's never been the case that he was teaching that the pre-mortal Christ was merely a spirit. He saw that he had a spirit body, but that's different. No, I'm, I'm talking about in the lectures on faith, it explicitly said that God is a spirit and does not have a tabernacle. I'm just saying he does change his view, so it's not like Joseph Smith doesn't contradict himself sometimes. And we talked about this in the intro, which I'll insert in here, about you know the ideas of salvation for the dead. What he's doing there is paraphrasing Mosiah 14 through 16, where it talks about the Father being a personage of spirit or the body being subject to the spirit. And so he's he's reflecting on that scripture. It's very probable Joseph Smith actually wrote the fifth lecture, and I don't think he's saying that the Father doesn't have the body. I, I think he would interpret it in light of, of Ether 3, where the Son already has a body of spirit, and by eyes of faith he saw that he was going to take upon him a body. Um, so I think he's already interpreting it in light of what he had in the Book of Mormon. I mean, it's all context. Jesus has a body. God doesn't have a body. I'm not sure how else you can interpret that. Uh, no, it doesn't say that at all. Okay, I just read it, but whatever. Okay, well, we need to move on. So the next item is we're going to have Jacob take on the Sermon in the Grove, focusing on this idea that's often interpreted that from the sermon, somehow there is this notion that God, the Father of Jesus Christ, in other words, who we call Heavenly Father, has a Father, and that there are gods above Heavenly Father, which you also refute that idea. And I would like Jacob to kind of go over the trouble text and then have you kind of give your interpretation, have you, how you've done here and how you work it out differently than some people have interpreted it. All right, so Joseph Smith starts out this sermon in the Grove using a verse from Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. It says, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And he's really getting big into the plurality of gods here. And a lot of people want to think that, like, oh, he's here to introduce some grand new thing about the plurality of gods. But really, he's, he's taught this before. In, there's a sermon where he gave uh, on June 11th of 1843, where he begins talking about the plurality of gods. And he says, and this is language very similar to what we see in the Sermon on the Grove. You know, he says, there are gods many and lords many. The teachers of the day say that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God, and they, they are all in one body and one God. Jesus says or prays to those that the Father had given him out of the world. It might be one in us as we are in one, but they are where to be stuffed up into one person that would make one great God, or in one of the other accounts, is, you know, stuffed into one god a really big god and then in the sermon on the grove he's saying more or less the same thing when it comes to the plurality of god that you know if we have all three of these shoved into one that would make one big god and what he's refuting is no the bible teaches a plurality of god with god father god the son and god the holy ghost being three separate personages two now having bodies one will eventually get a body okay let me make an observation here Joseph Smith is caricaturing the notion of the Trinity believed by traditional Christians. And it is a caricature. This is not a very charitable statement of what they actually believe. 
The whole purpose of the text that he's citing is so that he can say the notion of a plurality of gods is certainly biblical, and in that he's certainly correct. He begins, and this is an interesting thing, we have only the Bullock Report, and it actually gets the text of Revelations wrong. It says it's in the third Revelations text, 6, which I take to be 3 and 6. It's actually 1 and 6, and the underlying text is that we are kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be all glory and dominion forevermore. And the phrase that he's interested in is God and his Father, which would say that the, that God has a Father. And most people would take a reference to God to be the Father. And so if we're saying that, that God has a Father, who's his Father? And in any event, he's, he's now taking up the text to talk. But in the first part of this conversation, he's very clearly saying that God, who is referred to here, is Jesus Christ, and his Father is the Father of Jesus Christ, the one to whom Jesus Christ prayed. And so, at least in this first context, to prove the plurality of gods, he's, he's making this distinction. I don't think it's much of a distinction. I mean, unless you're going to say that the notion that Jesus was already God is somehow foreign to Christianity, which it certainly is not. But that's the basis of his argument here. And then the question becomes, one really of where dashes belong and whether or not commas should put in be put into the text because they aren't. In the text that we have from the Bullock report, there are sometimes dashes which make it clear. Now, let me give you one. He says, for instance, and, and I think this is a, a good way to start out on this. He says, our text says the apostles have discovered that there were gods above. Dash. God was the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it could have been read this way, that there are gods above God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is how a lot of people read that, by the way. I don't think that's the part where they think that, but go on. That's the next part, I think. It could be read that way if the dashes weren't there. But they are there, and so they make a distinction between the God above God the Father, rather than saying that God was the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you read it without the dashes, there were gods above God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, then it would be saying what it says later in the text without dashes. Well, Bullock is doing this in shorthand and not using commas. It's unclear whether what, what the dashes exactly mean, but in this first context, it's very clear that the Father is the Father of Jesus Christ, and when the reference is to God, he means by reference to God, Jesus Christ. And so later on in the text, when it refers to God and the Father, we have to ask whether he's going to be talking about God's, if he says the phrase God above, because here the God above is God the Father. Correction, he does say God's above, not necessarily God above. He says there were God's above, and then dash, God was the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, and what he's talking about is down here just a little bit later where he says, my object my object was to preach the scriptures and to preach the doctrine they, they contain, there being a God above the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, knowing the dashes above, we know that no, what this should be is, there being a God above, comma, the Father of Jesus Christ. I don't see how that leads to that conclusion at all. Well, the problem is, we have above him saying, that the apostles have discovered that there were gods above, dash. For John says, so we know that when he's saying there being a God above, the BYU transcript, they have the comma there as well. What happened is this, is Joseph F. Smith added that comma because, yes, if it says, which I, you know, that's not even the main issue here. 
but that's one of them. It, this would this would definitely put the nail in the coffin if there were no comma here, and you know there might not be because he just plainly says, "I want to talk to you now about there being a God above the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ," meaning a God above our actual Father. Well, the thing is, that's not what he's talking about here because we know in the paragraph before he's saying, "I've always declared." God to be a distinct personage, comma, Jesus Christ to be a separate and distinct personage from God, the Father, comma, and the Holy Ghost. His plurality of gods that he's talking about is God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost being separate personages, not being the Holy Trinity. That's what he's refuting here, is the Trinity. No, it's not. What, it, what he's doing there is he's just establishing everyone. He's like, guess what, everyone? I've already taught. He's like, I'm about to teach you about plurality of gods. But to take the shock away, he's like, you know, I've already been teaching you about a plurality of gods because I've taught you about God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost. See, there's already, you already believe in three gods because you already believe that, right? Okay, we got this base. Now we're going to move on to this next thing. And then he talked about that scripture um, that Dad talked about, Revelation 1 6, where he's saying, And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. God and his Father. And so he's like, well, that's weird. What does that mean, God and his Father? Does God have a Father? And so, it's like, all right, so the apostles discovered that there were gods multiple above. Yeah, but the multiple he's talking about are Jesus and the Father as two distinct beings, therefore sure. they're gods. Sure. And he's not talking about gods above the Father here, he's saying just gods above in the heavens. No, no, I definitely agree with you there. It could, however you interpret that, he didn't finish the sentence, so who knows. He just said gods above. Next, he says, God was the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. New thought. My object was to preach the scriptures and preach the doctrine of there being a God above the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whereas Joseph F. Smith adds, uh, there being a God ab above, comma, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, meaning that would then be referring only to him, which is fine. But the problem next, at least one problem, is the next thing he says is, I am bold to declare that I have taught all the strong doctrines publicly. Now, it's pretty clear that Jesus having a father is not a bold doctrine in any sort of way, so that doesn't really make sense why he'd say that. That's just a minor note. No, but he's he's going to go on later and talk about the council of gods as a means of preaching about the plurality of gods. The whole discourse is about the plurality of gods, okay? And the bold doctrine, and let me point this out, I think this is extremely important. The bold doctrine is precisely that there's a plurality of gods and not just one god is taught in the Trinity. That's his argument. If he were teaching something so radical as God the Father having a father and that there was an infinity of gods above him, certainly McIntyre and Laub would have noticed that because it's the most radical teaching in the history of Christianity. And they miss it altogether. They don't even mention it. But if this is the most radical teaching that's ever been taught by Joseph Smith, the one that he's emphasizing, they completely missed it. They didn't even know. They didn't even get the radical new teaching. If you were there and you heard this radical new teaching, you'd be going, oh my gosh. And so the fact that it's not even picked up by McIntyre, the fact that it's not in the Laub Journal, I think argues strongly that there's something going on here other than what you're asserting. That's possible. One thing before I let you guys keep taking it, let me just do this because I need to put this somewhere and this, this would fit well here. So one interesting thing that I found out while researching this is this is before this sermon in the Grove even happened, so we know that Joseph Smith talked to, or, you know, these probably weren't brand new ideas that he was just breaking out right here for the most part. I mean, they might have been, but... No, I no, think they weren't, because he said he's been teaching them in public. And, like, the sermon that I talked about on the Temple Grounds in 1843. I know, but we it's not like a, it's not like this, uh, this is a ontological 100% fact statement. He's just saying, you know... 
I'm trying to teach the stronger doctrines in public rather than in private. But in private, he also obviously would have thought about these things, maybe bounce some ideas off other people. Anyway, William Law, who is the editor of the infamous Nauvoo Expositor, who was also previously in the first presidency of the church on, let's see, when is it, like June 7th, the issue of the Nauvoo Expositor is published. And in it, they specifically accuse Joseph Smith of the things exactly that people have interpreted this to say. I will quote, they give all these resolutions for why they're seceding from the church and trying to go back to the original church that Joseph Smith taught. And he cites this, he says, they cite false doctrine of many gods. It is contended that there are innumerable gods as much above the Father that presides over this universe as he is above us. And some other stuff not related that he says, if he varies from the law unto which he is subjected, he with all his creatures will be cast down as Lucifer was. When was the Nauvoo Expositor published? June 7th, before the Sermon in the Grove. Yeah, my point is that the Sermon in the Grove can't be the source of that teaching. Exactly. All I'm saying is this idea is not simply a misunderstanding of one thing that Thomas Bullock missed some commas or didn't interpret something well or was his getting his ink out during while Joseph Smith was actually explaining the real thing. This idea is obviously being understood by people somewhere, and it's interesting that it's in the Navu Expositor before. William Law hasn't spoken with Joseph Smith in over a year, and do you think people close to William Law are teaching him the, the powerful doctrines of Joseph Smith? Don't you find it odd, though? If this was an accusation against Joseph Smith that was false, it seems pretty clear that this is exactly what Joseph Smith... No, it's what you think he was teaching, not what he was teaching. Or what other people could have been, people that are looking for supposed heresies that he's teaching. Everything that William Law accuses him of is exactly what they embrace. He current day do the same thing all the time, saying, Oh, you worship a god that lives on Kolob and impregnates polygamy. No, that that's not what they said here. Going out of proportion what doctrine actually is. Could you kind of dig somewhere and distort doctrine to make it look something like that? Yeah. Which is probably what Law did there. Except for that's exactly the interpretation that most of the saints had after the Sermon in the Grove. Anyway, I was just throwing that out there that this is not independent, and this is not the only place that this idea has been put forth. This is actually even before Sermon in the Grove, so Joseph Smith obviously had been teaching this idea and understood that way while William Law was around. Or teaching the idea of the plurality of God. No one has a problem with plurality of gods as long as you understand that the other gods are less than the, the head god. They do. If you, if you teach the plurality of gods and then you teach that God once dwelt on an earth, again, that uh, sermon from 1843, June 11th, 1843, we have him talking about, as the Father hath power in himself, so the Son hath power in himself. Then the Father has some day laid down his body and taken it up again, so is the body of his own. And so has his Son a body of his own, each one to their own body. Well, yeah, it, let This me is read. a year before, he teaches <laughs> the same thing, that Heavenly Father was on an earth at one point and needed to lay down his body and take it up again. Yeah, and let me read what William Law also said. Among the many items of false doctrine that are taught in the church is the doctrine of many gods, one of the most direful in its effect that has characterized the world for many centuries. We know not what to call it other than blasphemy, for it is most questionable, unquestionably speaking of a god in an impious and irreverent manner. I mean, this guy was a jerk. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying that, obviously he's saying this in a negative context. All I'm bringing up is that... No, what he's saying is that he taught the doctrine of plurality of gods. Well, yeah, that's one part where he said that. And then, the doctrine of plurality of gods in and of itself was a brand new doctrine, which was so out of place in, in their world that they took it to just be simple blasphemy. 
I know, but he happens to get it right that he taught a plurality of gods above the god of this universe. I'm just showing that that's exactly what most people interpret it to be after this, and that's interesting. Actually, what he says, it is contended that there are numeral gods as much above the god that presides over this universe as he is above us. And if he varies from the law, what he's actually over this universe, he never taught any such thing. Look, I'm not saying that he's referencing any specific recorded thing. I'm just saying these teachings were there in the air in in the interpretation that you are refuting. Can they be misunderstood to mean that? Yes, but let's get in here because we haven't even got to the most controversial part. Here, let, let, let me just get over that, and then you guys can discuss it. I, I can do this real quick, because I've been thinking about this for a long time. So, here's the problem statements in the Sermon in the Grove that I would like you to go against. We just talked about one where it says, there being a God above the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, that's weird. So, it's saying there might be a God above our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's see what else it says. He says, it's taught in the, in the Bible. Paul says, there's God's many and Lord's many. But then he says, you know what? But unto us, there's only one God. So, he could be meaning that we have only one God that is mattering to us, and it was assigned to our planet, as Brigham Young took it, or it could mean that there's actually only one God that's ultimate enough to care about, okay? Moving on. Or it could mean there's a Godhead, and that's the one God. So the next problem statement is here. He talks about some stuff from the Book of Abraham. I guess one thing of note is that he seems to be quoting a scripture from the Book of Abraham, but he quotes it differently, at least according to the Bullock Report, which is kind of interesting because it is kind of the opposite of what he was saying. He says, suppose that we have two facts and that another fact may exist. Two men exist on earth. One wiser than the other would show that one who is wiser than the wisest may exist. Intelligences exist one above another, that there is no end to it. As opposed to what it actually says in the Book of Abraham, where he says, basically, there are intelligences one above another, And then the next important phrase is, and I am the Lord thy God, and I am more intelligent than they all. And he refers several times to a head God. But what we want to focus on first is, he says, if Jesus Christ was the Son of God, remember this is what he conjectured at the beginning, what does this mean that God had a father? Or that, you know, Heavenly Father might have some sort of father. He says, if Jesus Christ was the Son of God, and John discovered that God the Father of Jesus Christ had a father, John, because that's what we're talking about in the scripture, you may suppose that he had a father also. So we're talking about two steps back now, not just the father of Heavenly Father, we're talking about Heavenly Father's father's father. Where was there ever a son without a father? Wherever did a tree or anything spring into existence without a progenitor? And everything comes in this way. Paul says that which is earthly is in the likeness of that which is heavenly, meaning Hey, you know how it is on earth that fathers have sons? Well, in heaven, fathers have sons as well. Or sons have fathers, and fathers have sons. Hence, if Jesus had a father, can we not believe that he had a father also? And the next kicker, why this would show that this is actually what he's teaching, as opposed to just something that is just la-di-da, that there was just Heavenly Father, and that's it. I despise the idea of being scared to death of this idea, basically. I want you to pay particular attention. Jesus said, as the Father wrought precisely in the same way as his Father had done before, as the Father had done before, he laid down his life and took it up again the same as his Father had done before. So that, I mean, I can see how you can interpret that differently, but that also seems to be saying that Heavenly Father did the same as his own Father. So that's, again, two steps back. 
Anyway, you interpret it differently than what I'm portraying here, and I mostly agree with you, so go ahead and walk through with Jacob, or how we can interpret this to say something besides that there is a God above our God, Heavenly Father. Well, there are a number of observations I would make. The first is we have to ask, what is the time period during which he is referring to God having a father? He's saying Jesus had a father. Well, Jesus had both a heavenly father while he was mortal, and he had a human father while he was mortal. We don't know. He doesn't say. He doesn't address whether the father, when he became mortal, was begotten in the same way as Jesus. He never addresses the issue. You know, we don't know whether he had the same kind of conception or whether he had a natural conception. It's just something that isn't addressed. And so we have all of these assumptions that we're making about what we're looking at here. The first thing I want to say, though, is that Joseph Smith is very careful in this particular context that he is saying that we're going to bring this back down to comparing it with what happens on earth. Paul says that which is earthly is in the likeness of that which is heavenly. Hence, if Jesus Christ had a father, can we not believe that he had a father also? In that context, what I think he's saying is, imagine you're Joseph Smith and you're thinking, well, the father was mortal one time. All right. There are two fathers that he must have had at that time, really. There must have been a God who held the the world in its orbit. Remember in the King Follett Discourse how Joseph Smith makes a big deal about his God who holds the worlds in their orbit. He must have been asking himself at some point, okay, if God became mortal, who's God while God is mortal? Who's holding the world in its orbit? There must have been a God that he recognized or that had rule of the universe while he was still mortal to take his place. The second is, well, did he have a mortal father? And I think that the text is unclear, but I think it's very clear that he's referring to the time that the father was on an earth and not for all eternity. He's not referring to the time before the father became mortal. He's referring to the time when the father was on earth. And on earth, everything has a progenitor. And so he's saying, who was the father must have had a progenitor of some sort when he became immortal. And so, you know, is the father a heavenly father like Christ? Is it an earthly father like everybody else has and every tree has, as he's suggesting here? I think he's pointing out this particular context when he's talking about the father of God the Father, and the context is during the time of his earthly life. Now, I also want to point out that this teaching that there's a God a father above the father and a father grandfather above that and a great great grandfather above that is inconsistent with the primary teaching that joseph smith gives us in the sermon in the grove yeah so let's start from if abraham reasoned that so let's let's if jesus christ was the son of god and john discovered that god the father of jesus christ had a father so what father here is john discovering the father that the God, the father of Jesus Christ had a father. What's this talking about in your view, dad? If he discovered that the father, he's talking about the mortal probation of the father. And he must have discovered that the father of Jesus also had a father because Jesus had a father when he was mortal. Okay. So we're saying John discovered that God, the father of Jesus Christ had an earthly father. You might suppose that he had a father also. Who's the he here? The father of Jesus Christ, God the Father. Had a father also. He is Now, is this talking about a, he- a father in heaven while he was on earth? 
or who's the father here now? Because we just talked about the earthly father. Then why are you saying you might suppose that he had a father also? It's, it's not certain whether he's talking about a heavenly father while he's mortal or an earthly father while he's mortal. But the balance of the text would suggest he's talking about an earthly father because he's placing in the context of natural propagation. Wherever is there a, a tree without a, a prior tree, wherever is there a father without a son, he's talking about natural propagation and a progenitor. He uses the word progenitor. And everything comes in this way. So he's talking about um, the way things are generated on earth, and he's saying that there's a natural generation to it. And so I tend to believe that what he's reflecting, I, I mean, put, put yourself in Joseph Smith's place. You've learned that the father became mortal. This is stunning because nobody's ever really considered the idea before. Well, what does that mean? It, he, he must have had a father while he was mortal. Well, was he born of a natural father? Well, he must have been because everything that's born naturally has a natural father. And that seems to be what he's saying to me. Okay. Well, because there's two separate fathers here that it seems like he's talking about. So is this first one also an earthly father or is he saying, you know, Jesus? Well, there's a line. There's a line of earthly fathers in the same way that, that I had a father and, and you've got a father. They, there's a natural propagation because that's what he's talking about. He says, where did a tree ever or anything spring into existence without a progenitor? And everything comes this way. Paul says, which the earth... All right, but let's go back for a second, because here's the part where it's not making sense. If we say, John discovered that God the Father of Jesus Christ had an earthly father, then you might suppose that God the Father had an earthly father also. He, it seems like he's talking about the same earthly father twice, based on what you just described. But that why would he be do that? No, that's not what he's doing. Okay, like I did, and different... If he had, if he had an earthly father, you may suppose that that earthly father also had a father because everything is born naturally. That's Everything's born that way. Okay, so the he there is then talking about God the Father's earthly father, and then the father after that is a father of an earthly father. Am I, understand? Am I following you correctly? Yeah, he's talking about natural generation, one okay. generation to another. Okay, and then wherever there was a son without a father, or is there ever a father without first being a son? So he's just talking about things on earth. Then whenever did a tree spring into existence, rather progenitor, everything coming this way. Paul says that which is earthly is like that which is heavenly. Hence, that's, that's where I think you should emphasize that for a second. Why would he be saying, even if he was talking about earthly fathers, he says, that which is earthly is in the likeness of that which is heavenly. So the whole discussion, whatever he's talking about on earth, he's saying is just like it is, not like exactly, but it's like it is in heaven. So if earthly people have progenitors, heavenly people have progenitors is basically what he's saying. Yeah, everybody has a father. And so the question is, who was his father? And did, Heavenly how did he progenitor. Come? Yeah, and, and the answer is that God the Father is the father of all of the sons. That's exactly what it says later in the in the text, he's saying that we're all sons and daughters of God, of the same Father. So at one point in the Sermon in the Grove, what Joseph Smith does is he gives us his interpretation of the first words in Genesis 1. And what he's saying is that the word berashet, the word that is translated in the beginning, should not be berashet. It shouldn't be in the beginning or often translated as when God began his creation. It should be translated, rather, the head, because rash in Hebrew actually means the start, the beginning, or the head. And he says it's a grammatical termination. He's right about that. So what he says is this. He says, it read first, 
in the beginning the head of the gods brought forth the other gods, or as others have translated, the head of the gods called the gods together. I want to show a little learning as well as other fools. The head god organized the heavens and the earth. If we pursue the Hebrew text further, it reads, The head one of the gods said, Let us make man in our own image. The word Elohim ought to be the plural all the way through, gods. The heads of the gods appointed one god for us. So what he's recognizing, he's talking about, he's teaching about the council of the gods. And he's recognizing that there's a head god over the council of the gods and that there are many gods in this council of the gods. Some of these gods are head gods. They're the heads of the other gods. But there's one head god over all the other gods. But if there's a head god, and he calls all the other gods together, it's inconsistent with the notion that there are gods for all eternity above God the Father. And this is in this very sermon that he's teaching in the Grove. The next thing I want to point out, he quotes, or Bullock purports to give us a quote, Joseph Smith expressly states that he learned it while he was translating the Book of Abraham, which, by the way, had already been published in the Times and Seasons at the time this was given. He knew well how it read. He'd written it. So he said, I learned a testimony concerning Abraham, and he reasoned concerning the God of heaven. In order to do so, he said, suppose that we have two facts that suppose that another fact may exist, two men on the earth, one wiser than the other. It would show that another who is wiser than the wisest may exist. Intelligences exist one above another, that there is no end to it, if Abraham reasoned thus. So the way I read that is to say, well, that can't quite be right, because it's directly contrary to what he published in the book of Abraham that he's actually quoting. Instead, what the book of Abraham says is there's one star above the other. What he's using in the English that we have is G-N-O-L-A-U-M, but it's actually in Hebrew, Hahulam, which means an indefinite period of time. It's often translated as eternal. What it actually says is, these two facts do exist. This is exactly what he's quoting in the Sermon on the Grove, that there are two spirits, one being more intelligent than the other. There shall be another more intelligent than they. I am the Lord thy God. I am more intelligent than they all. Now he goes on to say, I dwell in the midst of them all. Now therefore I have come down unto thee to declare unto thee the works which my hands have made, wherein my wisdom excelleth them all. For I rule in heaven above and in the earth beneath, in all wisdom and prudence over all the intelligences thine eyes have seen from the beginning. So now let me just mention that the way it's put in the Sermon in the Grove, that there would be somebody who's wiser than the wisest, is just logically impossible. There can't be anyone wiser than the wisest. And he's saying, Actually, I think this is a misstatement in Bullock. I don't think he got it quite right. I think it is actually referring to the wisest of all, who is God the Father. He's wiser than all of the others. But for the intelligences, there is an eternal gradation. There will always be one intelligence above another until we get to the head God, until we get to God the Father, who is the wisest of them all. He is wiser than all of them. And the book of Abraham goes to lengths to describe that God is above all of the other gods. But there are other gods. It teaches the very plurality of gods that Joseph Smith is talking about here. So let me give a summary, if I may, because, look, this can be read in a lot of different ways. And as I've said, every text has kind of an infinite play in it. There are a lot of different ways to read it. Can I hop in just real quick? And 
because I was just reading this earlier today and I noticed this and this would seem to make more sense whether Joe Smith actually said it this way or maybe whatever Bullock heard this is what he wrote down to interpret it that way but instead of saying two facts exist what he's saying here another fact exists and then he says two men on the earth one wiser than the other would logically show that another who is wiser than the wisest and here I thought well we're talking about two men he's saying there will be another one that's wiser than the wisest man of the two and what he's really showing here, he's not saying anything about God being greatest above the all. He's really just showing the infinity of intelligence there are, because the next thing is intelligences exist one above another so that there is no end to it. And so, yeah, I think that's speaking a, of the two men reading it. and wisest there being the wisest of the two men, he's like, well, there's going to be another one that's wiser than that man. And, you know, there's in, infinite intelligences and some of these intelligences are gods. And we talk about those gods later, but that just occurred to me earlier as I was reading it. Yeah, and let me point out something else that suggests to me that this is kind of incomplete. We have the McIntyre report of this very same sermon, and what he says is Jesus said that all things that he saw the Father, so he did, and also the Psalm 82, verse, first verse, God standeth in the congregation of the mighty, he judgeth among the gods. Now, this is probably something that was quoted by Joseph Smith, but it doesn't even appear in the Bullock Report, which would suggest to me that we're dealing with kind of a, a very quick shorthand that's getting the gist of the ideas. But when we look at the other reports of what was actually said here, the scriptures that are cited, they cite scriptures that aren't even cited in the Bullock Report. And so I have reason to believe, and, and this just calls into question how accurate this is in terms of what Joseph Smith is actually saying word for word. And so I just want to give the caution that if we're finding things here that they don't even notice, and you know, you're going to read them in a way that is going to give this a remarkable doctrine that certainly they would have paid attention to, then it would make sense to find a reading that is more consistent with the very text that Joseph Smith is actually quoting. So let me suggest five reasons why what I'm really doing here is suggesting a consistent hermeneutic that places all of this in the context of the best reading we can do, in the total context of what we know Joseph Smith taught, in the total context of the text that we have here. First, the view that there is a head God is inconsistent with a notion of an infinity of gods above God the Father. And in fact, he quotes Abraham 3 and 17 through 22 a passage that Joseph Smith quotes, but Bullock, I don't think, I don't think he got it all. I think, that, and I think he misunderstood the way that it was being applied. Second, the view in an infinite hierarchy of gods is contrary to Joseph Smith's own interpretation of Genesis one and one as referring to the head God who organized all of the other gods. Third, the reading that the Father did as his own Father did is inconsistent with the underlying text of John five nineteen, which states that the Son does what the Father does. Not that the father does what his father did, as the Bullock notes would have it. So, again, he's misrepresenting what a scripture actually says, because it doesn't say what Bullock is saying, it says when he quotes it. Next, in context, the reference to God the Father having a father is referring specifically to the earth, and it appears to me to his mortal experience, and not to God before he was mortal. And if he's doing just as Jesus did when he became mortal, it appears to me that the only thing that's consistent with Joseph Smith's teaching is that the divine members of the Godhead were fully divine before becoming mortal. They empty themselves canonically of the fullness of their divinity while they're mortal, and then they become fully divine again when they take up their lives again. 
even more compelling to me. The reading that the Father is the supreme God brings Joseph Smith's thought into alignment with his earlier statements and other statements that are made around this time by Joseph Smith. The view that there is a head God who is the God of all other gods presiding over the governance of the world was also expressly stated in an 1840 sermon, an 1842 sermon, but most importantly is stated in the March 20, 1839 letter from Liberty Jail in which he says, quote, there will be a time to come in which nothing shall be withheld, whether there be one gods or many gods, they shall be manifest according to that which was ordained in the midst of the council of the eternal God of all other gods before this world was. And so what he's doing consistently, he's teaching of a council of gods. And in this council of gods, there are a number of gods who are rulers in the council over the other gods. These gods are sons and daughters of God who will one day become mortal. They don't have the full divinity of the Father, who is the wisest of all of the intelligences. He's wiser than them all. And what I think Joseph Smith is teaching in the context of his other teachings is precisely that when the father became mortal, he must have had a father. And I don't know that he's expressly addressing and trying to resolve whether the father was heavenly or whether the father was earthly. But I think anybody who's reflecting on, well, if God the father became immortal, who was in charge during that time? Did he have another God? Did he pray to him? Did he have a mortal father? These are obvious questions that would need to be addressed. And I think Joseph Smith addresses that in the context of referring to the earthly being in the likeness of the heavenly and expressly bringing it down so that we understand he's talking about the father during the time that he's immortal on the earth, because that's the context in which he places it. Now, can it be read differently to say that there's a father above God the father and there's a God above him also? Yes, it can be read that way. But it would be inconsistent with the points that I've raised, and it would overlook the misquotations of the scriptures and place them in a different context. All in all, I think that these kinds of observations suggest that at least the hermeneutic I've suggested is worthy of consideration, and I think provides, if not a compelling argument, at least a persuasive argument. It may not be compelling, but I think it's one that deserves a closer look. It deserves to be considered, and even if a person says, well, I'm not convinced, at least leave it as an open possibility that that's exactly what was happening with Joseph Smith, because I don't believe that Joseph Smith was a theologian. I don't think he had to be consistent, and I don't think he was always consistent. But I don't think he was wildly inconsistent either. I think that there's an overall coherence to the, his teachings that's often overlooked. He's not trying to write a systematic theology, but he is at least trying to make sense of the scriptures. And he has this consistent teaching about a plurality of gods and about a council of gods. And it becomes very explicit in the Nauvoo period that he's teaching about this council of gods. And so my attempt is, okay, let's put this into three contexts, the immediate context of this text, the context of what Joseph Smith previously taught about these subjects, in the context of all of Joseph Smith's teachings, recognizing that he learned and grew as, as further revelations came in, and without saying that he always has to be consistent or that he always was consistent. All right, that's great. Let me try to sum up what we want to conclude from what you're saying, and then I just have one other conclusion that you could make from it. Obviously, you don't agree with it, but it would also be consistent with things, at least as far as I read them. So it seems like what you would like to say is that Joseph believed that the father of Jesus was the head God, and that he appointed a God unto us, as it says, and that God which he appointed unto us was Jesus Christ. One other possible interpretation that would still be consistent would be 
that God the Father could be the head God, or if you take all this father having a father business as serious, but I think one of your strongest points is that yes, he taught that there was a head God, and so there can't be an infinite regress of gods forever, but that doesn't necessarily mean there can't be different gods. So one idea that some people have put forth is that there is a head God, it's not the Father of Jesus Christ, but it is the head God, and then the God assigned to our earth was the Father of Jesus Christ, and that he had a father and he had a father, many perhaps thousands or millions up until the head God. That's one possible interpretation, and actually, just a side note, I guess, a belief that was held by Isaac Newton as well as Benjamin Franklin they kind of forsook general Christianity, but they both kind of believed that there was this head supreme God, and the only way that you could, this was kind of in light of the fact that the universe was a lot bigger than they thought, and there's many star systems, like, well, how could this God possibly, you know, take care of this and care about one little planet? It's like, oh, you know what? There could be a supreme God, and then they divvy out and assign specific gods to specific worlds and solar systems, and that's what makes sense of the sayings that he's the only God with whom we have to do, or the only God that pertains to us. But again, I think, you know, that's one other possible interpretation. But like you said, what you're trying to do is admirable and definitely is a plausible reading of the text. Sure, you have to kind of bend things in a way, but you kind of have to bend things in any way just because we don't have what Joseph Smith actually said, and we don't have Joseph Smith here to actually talk to him about what he actually meant by this. And you know, truth be told, even if we did go back in time and talk to Joseph Smith at that time, he might not have it all worked out himself. You know, some of this could be speculation, some of it could be inferences from scriptures. A lot of his revelatory ideas just came while he was doing his inspired translation of the Bible, such as, you know, stuff like this. He'd read a verse, and like, in John it says that God and his Father, that's weird. What can we look in through the scriptures of that? There's, there's God's many and Lord's many. Okay, interesting, interesting. Anyway, well, there's one final statement in the Sermon on the Grove that I think is very interesting, and it's kind of his summation of his teaching on the plurality of gods. He said, I believe in these gods, the God reveals his gods, to be sons of God, and all can cry, Abba, Father, Son of God, who exalt themselves to be gods, even from before the foundation of the world, and all are the only gods I have reverence for. John said he was a king. Jesus Christ, who hath been his own blood, made us kings and priests to God. O thou God, who art King of kings and Lord of lords. So he's recognizing an ultimate God there. The gods that he's talking about are gods who are sons of God in the council of the gods. And so his summary, I think, is a fitting summary. It's an accurate summary, and I think it's expressly the way that I think he's teaching this. Are there problems in this text? Yes. And, I, and one of my purposes in this reading is to problematize the text in a way that calls into question the standard reading to say, look, there are other readings that are not only possible, but in context, I think, make better sense. And in the full context of Joseph Smith's teachings, make a lot better sense. And so, you know, I'm not saying that anybody who reads it differently is crazy or just can't read or that there can't be good arguments that are being mounted for alternative readings. But I believe that overall, that for a lot of reasons, this is a, a superior hermeneutic. That doesn't mean everybody has to agree with me. However, I will make this observation that Joseph Smith made. It is life eternal to know the only true God in Jesus Christ whom he had sent. This is an observation he makes in the King Follett Discourse. 
To know God is therefore of the essence, not only to Christianity, but to exaltation, because it's to have life eternal, the kind of life that God lives. Therefore, it's not just a passing fancy that this is important. To know God, to know him interpersonally, to be invited into relationship with him and to share the unity is of the essence of Christ's teachings, it's of the essence of Joseph Smith's teachings. And if we are just totally wrong about knowing God, then we can't realize what is being promised here. So I think it deserves a serious study and, and paying attention to it. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.